from the Great Jarmuthan District Talking Newspaper Association, welcome to Volume 40, Number 46 of Grapevine. This is online version number 34, recorded on the 13th of November 2020. In this week's news, planning for rolling out the coronavirus vaccine in Norfolk. Concern over vulnerable liverboards as winter approaches on the broads. And on a lighter note, enjoy a slice of Galston Seafront with your tea. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, with this week's newsreader, Desney, who also brings us pieces from Helen McDermott and Chris Gorham, plus Andy with another weird Norfolk tale. And our apologies for the unplanned double helping of Dusty's piece on last week's recording. This was, however, extra two rather than replacing anything else. It has been corrected now, so if you uh, wish to download the podcast from last week, please do so. Right, onward and upward. Here's Desney with the first part of the news. A long haul, GP says Norfolk will cope with coronavirus vaccine rollout. A Norfolk GP has said the rollout of a coronavirus vaccine will be the biggest vaccination campaign in NHS history, but that the county's GPs would be able to cope. On Monday, pharmaceutical giant Pfizer announced its coronavirus vaccine has been found to be more than 90% effective marking a major breakthrough in global efforts to bring the virus under control and sparking hopes of mass vaccination programmes. Tim Morton, a practising GP and chairman of the Norfolk and Waveney Local Medical Committee, LMC, said while the rollout of a vaccine would pose a number of logistical challenges, he was confident the county's GP practices would be able to rise to the challenge. He said among the obstacles to overcome were the scale of the operation ahead, the geography of Norfolk and how the vaccine needed to be stored and administered. Dr Morton, who is also GP committee member at British Medical Association, said, We as a county challenged by age and that we have urban and large rural areas, it will fall to individual areas to come up with the best way to deliver the vaccine. He said the potential vaccine posed a number of logistical difficulties when compared to the standard flu vaccine due to its shelf life and how it has to be stored, defrosted and diluted before it is administered to patients. Local vaccination hubs formed by groups of GP surgeries may be set up to deliver the vaccine to the public, according to Dr Morton. He said, this is going to be quite a long haul to vaccinate so many people and we also need to mitigate the effect on GP appointments and normal surgery. GPs have remained open throughout the pandemic and consistently responded to the challenge and seen even more patients. Dr Morton, who is a GP at Beckles Medical Practice, 
said he was concerned about the well-being of his colleagues across the county and extra pressure the vaccination programme may create. He said the number of doses available to Norfolk would initially be very limited. I'm not expecting to start quickly because we'll get a very limited supply of the vaccine at first, so I couldn't say that a mass vaccination initiative will be rolled out before the new year, he said. We will target care home residents and staff in the first incidence and then health care staff. Dr Morton also urged caution over the vaccine's potential effects, saying it was not the only measure which we will, will see life go back to normal. This is not the panacea that will make coronavirus go away. It's part of the long-term road to recovery. So I would currently ask the people of Norfolk to carry on following the healthcare advice, wearing masks, hand-washing and social distancing, he said. Dr Morton also asked people not to inundate their GP's practices with requests for the vaccine and to wait for public health messaging on the vaccination programme when it started. On Tuesday, a letter was sent out to all primary care providers in the country telling them how urgent preparation was needed so GP practices would be ready for the rollout of a COVID-19 vaccination programme. The seven-page letter detailed how plans for the deployment of a COVID-19 vaccine build on the tried and tested rollout plans for influenza vaccine. It added, given the uncertainty over whether and when a vaccine may be approved, health bosses were planning to be ready for any date from December with mass vaccination more likely in the new year. An NHS spokesman said, The NHS has well-established plans for delivering vaccination across the country, including the annual flu jab and children's immunisations, and work is underway to build on these tried and tested approaches so that when a vaccine is ready, staff can deliver it safely. GPs will play an important part in delivering a COVID vaccine as soon as it's ready, and exact arrangements, which will be announced shortly, will include funding to reflect the complex logistics and preparations required. Long-standing Yarmouth councillor to retire after more than 30 years. A Norfolk County councillor and deputy group leader is set to retire next year after over three decades in local government. Mick Castle, County Councillor for Yarmouth North and Central and Deputy Leader of County Hall's Independent Group, will step down as a councillor as of the next set of council elections in May 2021. Mr Castle, who was first elected in 1988 following a by-election in the former Yarmouth, Southdown and Cobham division, formed the independent group alongside the West Norfolk ex-Conservative member Sandra Squire in 2018 after leaving the Labour Party. He initially served as the leader of the group, 
which was formed as an alliance to tackle education issues. Mr Castle said, I've had a good time as a local councillor and I think there comes a time where you should stand aside and let someone younger take over. Sandra and I came from different strands of politics, but we were able to unite and work together. The independent group has been an important part of my council career and I've got the utmost respect for my colleagues. It was difficult for me to leave the Labour Party over the issue of the school's merger in Yarmouth. I would have been a bit of a lost soul if I hadn't been able to forge a new alliance. Group leader Sandra Squire added, Mick's contribution to local government will be missed when he steps down, and I wish him a long and happy retirement. It has been an honour and a pleasure working alongside him. Mr Castle was Norfolk's first Cabinet Member for Economic Development and Chairman of the Norwich Airport Company from 1996 to 98 and the Great Yarmouth Port Authority from 1999 to 2004. In 2013, he was Cabinet Member for Schools as part of the Cross-Party Rainbow Alliance and has since sat on the Flood Defence Committee and the A47 Alliance. He stepped down as Deputy Group Leader from Wednesday, November the 11th, with Ed Maxfield, County Councillor for Munsley, taking over in that role. A happy ending to one of the saddest stories from last month. A key worker at an autism centre is back on the road after a stranger bought him a new bike. Kurt Greenwood's bicycle was stolen while he was at work at Sunbeam's Play in Great Yarmouth last month. He discovered the theft after receiving an award for bringing joy to children's lives during the lockdown. As centre staff and parents rallied round offering donations and lifts, his plight touched the heart of Adrian Gray of Galston. The retired oil and gas worker stepped in to pay for a new bike, saying he was delighted to be able to help. He said he is obviously a well-deserving young man and I am happy to have been able to help. It certainly does give everybody a warm feeling to hear about individuals who have suffered misfortune but suddenly out of the blue fate takes a hand and happiness is fully restored. Believe me I had the warmest feeling of all to be able to help a deserving chap such as him. Life has been very kind to me and I am so very fortunate to have been able to help in this small way. Sue Carr, Deputy Manager at Sunbeam said, on Kurt's behalf, I would like to say thank you. We were delighted to present Kurt with a new bike following a kind donation from Adrian Gray, who covered the cost of the bike and further donations from parents and staff to purchase lights and locks. The bike was purchased from Halfords in Great Yarmouth, who gave a discount and donated a set of mudguards. Kurt, who has been supported by his family and colleagues to get to work since his bike was stolen on October the 16th, has also received a card from the Lord Lieutenant for Norfolk, Lady Dannett, 
who expressed her disappointment in the theft and thanked Kurt for his hard work and determination throughout the pandemic supporting vulnerable children and young people. A spokesperson for Kurt said, Kurt was overwhelmed by the response his story has received and would like to personally thank everyone for their kindness and support. The 22-year-old, who is on the autistic spectrum himself, has been hailed as going above and beyond with everything he does to make everyone feel happy. Lights on, tinsel up, Christmas comes early in a Broads village. A village is already twinkling with Christmas sparkle as it bids to beat the coronavirus gloom. With the pandemic cancelling many of the usual festive events, Martham wants to bring doom-busting displays to doorsteps across the village and people are already answering the call to trim. For many, it means they've been up in the loft, grabbed bunches of tinsel, set up the nativity and untangled strings of lights to ensure the season of goodwill comes early. And as if that was not cheery enough, a random acts of kindness scheme is helping to make people feel better too. Starting with roofer Steve Gore of SG Roofing Repairs, who has offered to put lights up for free. Mr Gore said he had time on his hands since work had dropped off during the pandemic. Having put his own up on November the 1st, he said, I was sitting here bored one day and thought, why not? The couple out the back have got theirs up and I've just done the ladies round the corner who lost her husband. I expect by December the 1st they will all want it, but I can only do so many. Organiser Melissa Powley said she was delighted with the response to her Make Martham Sparkle appeal. She stressed it was not just about outdoor displays and that people could decorate their windows from the inside with lights, figures and pictures for others to see. It's a bit of a rubbish time, she said. There's no competition, it's just about bringing people together. A lot of people are putting lights out that don't normally, to feel part of something. And some have been furloughed and have not really got much to do, so it gives them something to think about. It's all about making people feel good. Martham is a good community. We have the Scarecrow Festival and the Carnival, so we're used to pulling together. Mrs Powley, a self-confessed fan of all things Christmas, said... Most people would be decorating for December the 1st, but many had started already. There's been a really good response. Really positive, she said. Many of you, I suspect, will remember Helen McDermott from the telly many years ago. She now regularly contributes pieces to the EDP and Desney found a piece she thought may be of interest. An article now from Helen McDermott who says make a pledge to stay connected however you do Christmas this year. Time flies. I dare say this paper's columnist Nick Richards 
will be as surprised as I was to realise that it's nearly a year since he and I agreed to disagree about whether or not to send any Christmas cards. What he said was that they were a waste of time and money and that he was content to use email or whatever more modern ways of wishing his family and friends a happy time. I said that I still preferred good old-fashioned cards because, rather like books, they can be lovely things, sometimes good enough to keep and even to cherish. I'm not sure what Nick's plans are this year for sending greetings, but I'm about to make a start, ploughing through the address book and wondering what to write this time. I'm no fan of those things called round robins, but I do like to include a brief personal message with a word or two about how we are and what we've been up to, and there's always a promise to meet in the coming year. It's not that we actually keep that promise, but the thought is always there. When you think about it, the chance of keeping such a promise is a pretty slim thing anyway, but we can still live in hope. It also seems inappropriate to send jolly cards with happy scenes showing how we'd like to think of Christmas with us all gathered together round the Yuletide fire. There are some pretty phony looking ones on the telly at the moment too. Some of the messages inside the cards are a bit offbeat, shouting stuff like Merry Christmas and health and happiness for the new year and hoping all our dreams come true. Someday we may return to some sort of normality. But to rub it in how jolly we should be at this time of year, in this year, seems to be rather heartless. We happen to be lucky in having a garden and a warm house, plus close friends who care, not to mention two cats who don't, but we like to think they do. We lost two friends this year through illness, and thanks to lockdown, we were unable to get together with other old friends and say goodbye. There were some good long phone calls, though. I imagine there'll be a good many Zoom Christmases this year, and smartphones will be working overtime. A friend and I were talking about Christmas prospects. She and her partner usually have a cracking affair with friends and family, and a giant tree, and she does all the cooking. But not this year. Can't say I'll miss it, she said. It'll be nice to have a year off and not feel guilty about not having them all round. Ah, guilt. I expect quite a few weary Christmas cooks will be thinking the same and relishing the thought of a rest. My friend and I talked about how we not only felt no guilt about dodging the chores, but also how we'd slowed down in various other ways. As a one-time news presenter, I spent years worrying about making it to the big time. It never happened. Or keeping a job when, at the age of about 30, I was looking over my shoulder because of the bosses becoming tired of me. Who cares what I once hoped to be? Now, none of it matters. Family and friends are what matters. We don't know what the future holds, and my friends and I strengthened our resolve to live for the day. We've even written it in our Christmas cards. Live for the day. 
All that seems all we can do at the moment, but we can hope for better days next year. Just enough time for Disney to take a gulp of breath as she launches straight into the second part of the news. The last thing we want is a tragedy. Police urge people to look out for others on the broads. The number of vulnerable people living in makeshift accommodation on the Norfolk broads has increased but still remains a percentage of those living on the waterways, police have said. Norfolk Constabulary's Broads Beat Patrols, the Norfolk and Suffolk Broads, and works with the Broads Authority to make sure that those living on the waterways follow bylaws, are correctly insured and stay safe. There are roughly 10,000 boats on the Broads at any one time. PC Paul Basson, the beat manager for Broads Beat, said the vast majority of those who live on boats live on comfortable, safe vessels. But a small percentage were vulnerable and living in unsuitable accommodation. He said, it's an alternative style of living. Lots of people come in and 99% of people who live on the Broads are fine but 1% are under the radar and they tend to be the vulnerable people who have drink and or drugs problems. PC Bassam, who has been involved with Norfolk Broadsbeat for more than a decade, said officers regularly patrolled the waterways to carry out welfare checks. He said, during the winter months, the Broads Authority and his team increased the frequency of welfare checks. PC Bassam said this time of year we start doing monthly checks because people need to keep warm and we point people in the right direction. He said some who lived on the broads, especially those in makeshift boats, were one step away from homelessness and had often lost jobs, be it through coronavirus or other reasons. PC Bassam said rather than sleep in doorways, they have found themselves on a boat because it can be attractive in the summer. He said in the winter months, officers often found people would find alternative accommodation or stay with friends and family, leaving boats moored and making them prone to sinking. He said while Broads Beat and the Broads Authority had a good relationship with boat owners and people living on the Broads, he encouraged anyone who was concerned about someone to contact the police. PC Bassam said, the last thing we want is a tragedy that could have been prevented. We're not there to keep a big brother watch. We're here to try and help. It's a joke. Anger as fire-ravaged care home secured by cable ties. Residents have called efforts to stop trespassing at a burnt-out derelict care home a joke after it was secured with metal fences and plastic cable ties. A fire tore through Abbeville Lodge along Eagle New Road on October the 27th, with eight fire crews battling the flames until the early hours. Neighbours were warned to keep doors and windows closed during the event. Nearby residents said the home had been left to rot after it closed in May 2019, following an inadequate CQC inspection, and admitted contacting police hundreds of times 
since then to report antisocial behaviour and criminal damage. But despite the severity of the damage sustained by fire, council officers turned up at Abbeville Lodge on November the 2nd to secure it with temporary panels and cable ties. According to B, a nearby resident of Bridge Road who did not want to give her last name, this is a joke and an insult to those living next door. She said, After me and my family going through a year of hell and feeling scared and threatened in our own home, the best the council can do is this. It's truly a waste of their time and resources. If they're not going to secure it properly, groups of teenagers will simply find a way back in. We may end up with another fire even. In response, the council said, As it is now impractical to board up the building due to fire damage, officers have closed off the wider site to the public as an emergency measure by repairing sections of wooden fencing, repairing existing metal fencing and installing new metal fencing. Any crime, antisocial behaviour or unauthorised intrusion should be reported to the police but police confirmed that prosecuting suspects is difficult due to a lack of evidence and the owner not supporting prosecution in the first place. B said the response from the council wasn't a sustainable solution. There's already been people here checking the place out today. You could easily squeeze through the gaps in the fences and there's no boards on the windows or doors, she said. I think it's going to take someone to get hurt for them to take the issue seriously. Being told the owner of Abbeville does not support prosecution really isn't my concern. My concern is keeping my family safe. Students self-isolating after confirmed coronavirus case at college. Five students are self-isolating after a college confirmed a positive case in one of the teaching bubbles. Amila Rassan, Deputy Chief Executive at East Coast College in Great Yarmouth, said, A student at our Great Yarmouth campus has tested positive for COVID-19. We immediately informed the health protection team and followed their advice and instruction. As soon as we were alerted to the case, we worked to identify those who had been in recent contact. This included only four other students who were asked to go home and self-isolate for 14 days to prevent any further spreading of the virus. They will now be supported with their learning online from home. We take the health and safety of all our staff and students extremely seriously and have strict guidelines in place around social distancing, keeping two metres apart, sanitising hands regularly and wearing face masks in communal areas. Throughout the coronavirus period, we have had a very low number of cases and this is thanks to the established protocols we have in place. She went on to say that those directly affected had been informed, adding... We don't, as a rule, send this information out to everyone involved with the college to prevent further alarm at what is already an emotional and challenging time. East Coast College remains open as normal, with an enhanced cleaning protocol in place, 
and we would like to wish our student all the best in their recovery. The college has some 5,000 students. Fears that COVID-19 has killed Saturday forever as town is hit hard. Great Yarmouth had an end of season feel but with bells on as the first Saturday of the second lockdown landed. Having just got to its feet from the last one, which hit just before the tourist season, the imposition of a second before Christmas has taken away any hope of things improving, one market stall holder said. Bathed in sunshine and with temperatures climbing incongruously to 17 degrees, the shuttered seafront and its arcade machines, shrouded in plastic from behind closed doors, was home to just a few joggers and mums with prams as a handful of takeaways offered ice creams and teas. Away from the Golden Mile in town, it seemed relatively normal by current standards, with a fair few people milling about, some in short sleeves. But few of them were buying, said Ros Cleland from behind tiered towers of colourful fruit and veg. There's a fair few people, but trade has been awful, she said. I think people have just come out for a stroll, but that's not going to pay the bills. They're probably going to the supermarket and doing it all in one go. At the nearby pea stall, father and son team Gary and John Salmon said it was so quiet they were thinking about shutting at 2pm. We've lost a lot of shops anyway. There's very little to come into town for. We're trying to keep things going and do the best we can. As long as we stand together, we'll get through this. Things are very different this year. It doesn't feel like a Saturday. We usually get a lot of people from Norwich, but we haven't seen them. This time of year, it's mostly local trade. Meanwhile, at Brewer's Chip Stall, trade was said to be slow, slow, slow. One man declaring, there will never, ever be a normal Saturday again. Under the slightly more relaxed lockdown, more shops and takeaways were open and there were benches to sit on around the marketplace, whereas last time they were cleared away or taped off. Taking a seat and sharing a portion of famous market chips was Lee Brooker and his daughter Oscara, aged seven. The pair had been lured out by the sunshine and come out to some fresh air while his partner was at work. Mr Brooker said Yarmouth seemed quiet compared to the summer season, but it was nice to be able to get out and share a portion of chips and cheese. Also popping out for a stroll and something to eat was Hannah Taylor and her daughter Madeline. Mrs Taylor said they'd walked in from Palgrave Road to buy pancakes from the dessert bar in Market Gates for Madeline, nearly three, whose birthday plans, which would have featured a family gathering of some 40 people, had been called off. Among those not observing social distancing rules were the town's seagulls. Buoyed by the number of people eating chips, they were busy invading personal space and swooping at the unwary. Seagulls don't miss a chance, do they? Children have suffered enough. Can annual Santa Slator beat Covid restrictions? 
A 50-year tradition that sees Santa on his rounds aboard his trusty sleigh could be one of the casualties of a normal Christmas. The Great Yarmouth Lions Club sleigh is a festive highlight, drawing families out of their homes to give Santa a wave and make a donation to local good causes. But with a ban on gatherings and non-essential journeys, the charity's 2020 tour is in doubt. The charity said it was trying to make it work, but would not know until December the 2nd if there was any way it could go ahead. This year's schedule was due to start on November the 30th, running through to December the 18th. Spokesman Jerry Crowther said a notice posted on the club's Facebook page had gone crazy. He said the overwhelming feeling from locals was that they must make every effort to make it happen, with supporters posting comments like, Children have suffered enough this year. The Lions Sleigh visits streets across Great Yarmouth, Galston and the southern parishes, making longer stops at supermarkets and for the odd mince pie or sausage roll. A statement said, Behind this activity is a huge logistical operation. Council permits, sleigh and vehicle maintenance, lighting and sound system and Santa's helpers. Last year we completed 15 routes around the borough, attended five supermarkets and stores, switched on the lights in the marketplace and joined in the closing of the Christmas market. In addition, we visited three schools, Caster Brownies and the ambulance station. These combined visits enabled us to collect over £7,000, which in turn means Great Yarmouth Lions Club could continue to support local good causes. We know that many mums and dads are anxious to know what is going to happen this December. The truth is, at the moment, we do not know. We'd like to run as normal, but the current COVID-19 restrictions and guidance really make it almost impossible to do so in a way that keeps everyone safe. We've carried out a very detailed risk assessment. This covers all aspects of the sleigh activity. It's quite an operation to meet the full social distance and safety guidelines. Above all, we must ensure that we keep everyone safe. People on social media are saying it's the highlight of their year and part of the magic of Christmas. One woman said it won't be Christmas without it. Another said the kids need something to lift their spirits. Let's keep our fingers crossed that this can go ahead. Council bid to block building Bonanza in villages near to the coast as hundreds of residents object. Plans for 171 new homes in a single rural settlement have been recommended for refusal. The proposals relate to three sites comprising a new estate in Scrapby and two developments in Ormsby, the two villages being part of the same parish. Two of the sites are being put forward by Lowestoft-based Badger Building, which wants to build 67 homes on a former pick-your-own-field on the main A149 Coast Road in Scrapby, and 71 off Yarmouth Road, close to Willow Farm in Ormsby. 
The third application is for land off Foster Close on land belonging to a private garden in Station Road, Ormsby. In all three cases, officers at Great Yarmouth Borough Council are advising the Development Control Committee to refuse the schemes when it meets on Wednesday, November the 11th. At Scrapby, more than 120 have signed an online petition objecting to the estate. Concerns span the impact on services and village life, a lack of infrastructure and worries about traffic on an already busy main road. Meanwhile, 500 letters have been circulated by a newly formed residence group urging people to have their say. The estate was recommended for refusal last month, but members wanted to see for themselves the highways issue and consider the calming measures being put forward with the applicant keen to see it brought back to committee swiftly. There is already an outline approval for 19 homes on part of the site. Peter Holly of Nightingale Close, Scrapby, said some 200 people had objected by writing letters and signing online and paper petitions. Having moved up from Kent, where a similar building bonanza had destroyed rural life, with houses plonked all around leading to congestion and queues on once quiet lanes, he said he was keen to rally people to have their say. Where are all these people going to work, he said. They are boxing themselves in for a future problem if they allow the building bonanza. The land is said to be beyond the development limits of the village and relatively remote. Another proposal for 71 homes off Yarmouth Road, Ormsby, also from Badger Building, has drawn substantial opposition. Officers are advising refusal, saying the scheme is contrary to a string of policies and that any benefits outweigh the harm. The 33 homes in Foster Close at Beechcroft are also being flagged for refusal because they are contrary to the development plan and not required, the papers say. All three sites are on agricultural land described as Grade 1. Thanks, Desney. Andy now with a bit more on Weird Norfolk. Hello, this is Andy with another of the Weird Norfolk series of stories. And this one concerns what happens beneath the surface of the mysterious lily pit in Gorston. They say still waters run deep, and the lily pit at Gorston is no exception. Rumours abound that the pit was once haunted, but which of the three stories attached to it rings the truest? Common sense dictates that we steer clear of water-filled pits whose murky depths we are unable to fathom. But once upon a time, there were even more reasons to avoid the lily pit of Gorston. Three, to be precise. The pit lies west of what used to be Otty's farm, but is now a modern housing estate. A cottage still bears the same name as the pit, 
and there's a bustling school nearby too. Today the pit is on private land and isn't visible from the road, as hidden as its secrets. A map from 1883 shows an eerie coffin-shaped pit which was once a short walk from a farm on Beckles Road. Although the name is reminiscent of the island in Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, there are no shortages of haunting tales about the lily pit. Unlike all the best mysterious yarns, each has the gossamer thread of truth running through it. Some say the pit was the final resting place of a mail coach driven by four horses which clattered off the main track on a foggy night and plunged into the pit, consigning both horses and driver to a watery grave. Witnesses claim to see a phantom coach being driven hell for leather towards the pit at the witching hour, only for it to disappear as it arrives at the water. Another tale is that of star-crossed lovers who ran away to start a new life but were thwarted by tragedy before their story really began. A farmhand fell in love with the farmer's daughter and realising he could never win her hand in her father and his master's eyes, the pair decided to elope. But as they fled, the young woman lost her footing and tumbled into the pit where she drowned. Broken-hearted, her stricken lover vowed to meet her in heaven and hanged himself on a nearby oak tree. For years, people making their way to Great Yarmouth would divert down Crab Lane for fear of seeing the ghost of the young man crossing from the oak and into the pit to reunite with his love. The third story suggested the pit was the well of an ancient chief whose castle was nearby and whose body had been laid to rest. And the truth? There was a man called James Keeble who fell into the pit as he drove his horse home in thick fog in 1888. His horse returned home to Thirlton, but its rider was never seen again. And a story passed down through the generations of a family who have lived nearby for more than 100 years tells of carts travelling so fast that their wheels would overheat. It became common practice for drivers to back their carts to the edge of the pit in order to cool them down, and inevitably, on one occasion, the driver misjudged the depth of the water and the cart tipped into the pit, sending it to the bottom with the tethered pony unable to escape. The tale of thwarted love is said to have been woven from the true story of a Gorston man who could not bear the loss of his beloved daughter and so hanged himself on the hollow oak tree by the pit. The tree, which stood by the pit until the 1930s, became a macabre memorial, avoided by those who were old enough to remember the tragedy. As for the ancient chief, in 1892, a skeleton was unearthed which had been laid to rest on flints and was said to have the appearance of an early British burial, discovered a stone's throw from the pit. The skeleton may well have guarded the ancient water supply for centuries.
Its edges rounded over time. The lily pit is now half the size it was 200 years ago and is no longer as deep and as dark as it once was. During the air raids in the East in the Second World War, thousands of bombs were dropped in Great Yarmouth and Galston, causing huge amounts of damage. Rubble from the destroyed buildings was tipped into the water. Yet another secret swallowed by the mysterious lily pit. News in just a while, but uh, for a change, Desney thought some sports comment could be in order. So she found this piece from Chris Gorham. Just for any of you football fans out there, here's another column from the EDP, which is written by Chris Gorham, who, as you may know, commentates for Radio Norfolk on the Norwich City football matches. Unsung hero is forming his own Norwich City lockdown. There's one type of lockdown that we can all agree is for the best. After 180 minutes of football at Carrow Road over the last week, the rate of goals conceded by Norwich City has remained at zero. Tim Krull and Grant Hanley have expertly overseen the efforts to track and trace any threat posed by Millwall and Swansea. The defensive duo have established themselves as Norfolk's answer to Professor Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick Valance, but with hard graft instead of complicated graphs. City go into this international break in much better shape than the last one. They began October with a 1-0 defeat to Derby County, who are now bottom of the championship. That was their only win so far. Timu Puki's penalty slip combined with Wayne Rooney's late free kick suggested this was a canary campaign that could easily unravel. They'd lost two successive games, mustering just four points from the opening four matches. That two-week international break didn't provide the respite supporters had been banking on. Within three minutes of the first game back, they were a goal down at Rotherham. It wasn't long before the Millers had a penalty, which would have put them 2-0 up. But Krull saved brilliantly from Freddy Ladapo, and seasons can turn on such moments as this. Jordan Hugel was able to convert from the spot in the fifth minute of stoppage time to clinch a 2-1 victory. Krull ran the length of the pitch to join in with the goal celebration. It might only have been a marginal victory against a side who were in League One while Norwich were attempting to hold their own in the Premier League, but it felt significant. It was the first of seven games in four weeks. Norwich have come through all seven without losing, winning five of them, and now look well placed in the early stages of the Championship Promotion Grand National. They needed Krull again on Saturday to make a string of smart saves in the win against Swansea. That seven-game run also coincides exactly with Hanley's return to the team. The skipper has perhaps been the squad's most underappreciated player. A terrible run of injuries meant he was only able to start six games when Norwich won the championship in 2018 to 19. He's already surpassed that this season. 
Hanley was also injured when the Premier League returned from lockdown. There was an awful lot wrong with Norwich City in that dreadful final month in the top flight. The captain's presence probably wouldn't have kept them up, but his leadership and influence was definitely missed. He was there for the famous FA Cup win at Tottenham and the 1-0 victory over Leicester back in February, the last time Carrow Road was full. The Canaries were often too easy to score against last season. Those games were two notable exceptions. The last two years have seen precious few shutouts at Carrow Road. Maybe that's what comes with having so many young players in the team. Just like students, they have been too busy having a good time to worry about clean sheets. This looks like a more mature outfit. It's hard to remember any Norwich manager having more options than Daniel Farker has now. Sam Byron, Ben Gibson, Javi Quintilla, Lucas Rupp, Todd Cantwell, Kieran Dowell and O'Neill Hernandez were injured for Saturday's game against Swansea. All seven could justifiably consider themselves first-team regulars when fit. For most clubs, that would amount to an injury crisis. Farker, however, was still only able to offer tried and tested championship stars like Mario Vrancic, Alex Tetty and Hugill seats on the bench. In the end, it was another substitute, 19-year-old Bali Mumba, whose introduction turned the game in Norwich's favour. Farker's squad is deeper than Grant Hanley's voice when he's bellowing at teammates, with a fixture list that is even more congested than usual. This season, that depth is going to be worth a good few extra points in the championship. The graphs are looking good for City right now, but as Professor Whitty and Sir Patrick are always telling us, we mustn't ever become complacent. There is an editor's note at the end of the article, for those of you who are fans, that this article was written before Hanley pulled out of the Scotland squad with a minor hamstring complaint. Let's hope that is really just what it is and he's got this time out to get over it. Well, we'd better just have a quick glance at next week's television programmes. Strictly Come Dancing continues to entertain us on a Saturday night, but sadly, despite all its precautions, one pair, as Nicola Adams and Katia Jones, have had to withdraw since Katia has tested positive for COVID-19. So they have to self-isolate for two weeks. And that means they've got to finish their run in the show. I think they're both quite upset about it, but I think they're feeling okay. On ITV, at 8.40, as soon as Strictly finishes on Saturday night, we've got the much-delayed final of The Voice, which had to stop earlier in the year, in March, when the first lockdown began, just as the live shows were about to begin. So, this is the long-delayed final at 8.40 on Saturday. Then on Sunday, at 9pm on ITV, it's I am a celebrity, get me out of here. And that begins a very different looking run. Not the Australian jungle this year. The pandemic's put a stop to that one. 
So instead, their home for the next few weeks will be a chilly, wet Welsh castle on the North Wales coast. Very different. As Sir Mo Farah, Shane Ritchie, Vernon Kay, Beverly Callard, Victoria Derbyshire, Strictly's former pro-dancer AJ Pritchard are just some of the well-known names competing this year, not for the title of King or Queen of the Jungle. This time it's King or Queen of the Castle. And you'll be able to see how they get on every night at 9pm for, well, I don't know how long it's going to be this time, whether it's going to be any different. It's usually two or three weeks, isn't it? Meanwhile, if you like the idea of competitions and cookery competitions, on BBC, three nights a week, it's another MasterChef session. This time it's MasterChef The Professionals. They've just begun their run. They've just started this week. So they've had three nights of this week at 9pm for the first batch of, of uh, people. And next week they'll have another four and then another four and then a quarter final for them. That's over three nights at nine o'clock on BBC One, Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. And well, that's about it, I think. It's really quite taken over by I'm a Celebrity, which is on every night, as I say, and MasterChef, which is on the other side, for three nights a week. So I hope you find something to enjoy. Okay, after that breath of fresh air running around a field, let's have the last part of the news. New sponge inspired by a Norfolk beach is a piece of cake for bakers. It was a showstopper challenge worthy of a handshake on the Great British Bake Off. But for the staff of one Norfolk cafe, it really was a piece of cake when they were inspired to make a sponge resembling picturesque Galston Seafront. Staff at Margot's Lounge in Bells Road spotted a photo showing the blue sky and sea, the golden sand and green grass at the edge, and recreated a cake with the different coloured layers and blue sky icing over the top. And it is proving popular with their regulars. The idea came about when Ian Bullock, 57, who lives in Norwich but hails from Galston and who is a regular visitor to the coast, posted a photo on Facebook and said, If they ever came up with a Galston seafront cake on the Great British Bake Off, this is what the lovely layers would look like. He never imagined anyone would actually take him at his word and make a cake looking like the photo but the staff at Margot's decided to give it a try. Carolyn Hubbard, owner of Margot's, who took it over in 2018, said, In times of Covid, we thought it was a good idea to bring a bit of joy to customers. We showed it to our chef, and she made a chocolate base, with two Victoria sponges on top, one coloured green, like the grass, and the other to look like the sand and with blue-coloured icing drizzled over the top. We then thought it would be a good idea for people to challenge us to do various kinds of cakes, just to keep people going. We have very loyal customers, and we are open for takeaway coffees and cakes with just a skeleton staff. The Galston Seafront cake may be a regular on our menu now, though. 
Mr Bullock, retired, said, I was brought up in Avondale Road, so Galston Seafront and the cliff tops were my childhood playground back in the 1970s. I have great affection for the town and its beautiful golden beach. I've often sat on the cliff top benches and been struck by those distinctive lateral lines that really sum up the view out to sea. The pavement, grass, beach, sea and sky. So I recently decided to take some photos with my iPhone. The more I gazed out to the horizon, the more I thought they looked like layers of a sponge cake. I was delighted when the team at Margot's Lounge rose to the baking challenge and created the very first Galston Seafront cake. The cake is colourful, creative and delicious. Definitely worthy of the famous Paul Hollywood handshake and a sure winner. Norfolk at tipping point over COVID-19, warns Public Health Director. Norfolk has reached a tipping point over coronavirus, with the disease now spreading among communities, Director of Public Health has said. Dr Louise Smith, Norfolk's Director of Public Health, said it seems COVID-19 has now gone into the epidemic phase with transmission in areas which previously had low rates. And she said there were now concerns over the potential spread of the virus to older age groups, which would be a key issue for the county's hospitals in coping at what is always their busiest time of the year. It came as a spokesman for the Norfolk and Norwich University Hospital, NNUH, confirmed it had seen an increase in COVID-related admissions. The overall rate for Norfolk remains relatively steady at 95 cases per 100,000 people, down slightly on last week's 101 cases per 100,000 people. But places such as Broadland, North Norfolk and South Norfolk have seen rates sharply increasing in the past week or so. Dr Smith said that unlike with previous increases in areas such as Breckland, Great Yarmouth and Norwich, that cannot be attributed to outbreaks in factories or to the heightened testing of students at the University of East Anglia. The rate of cases in Broadland has doubled in the space of a week, increasing from 60.4 cases per 100,000 people in the seven days prior to Saturday, October the 31st, to 128.5 cases per 100,000 people in the week up to last Saturday, a new high for the district. In terms of actual cases, there were 79 positive cases in Broadland in the seven days up to Halloween and 168 positive cases in the seven days up to last Saturday the 7th of November. A new record rate high was also hit in South Norfolk. There were 95.1 cases per 100,000 people in the seven days up to Saturday, November the 7th. The number of actual cases went up from 90 in the seven days up to Halloween to 134 in the seven days up to Saturday. Rates in North Norfolk 
consistently the area of Norfolk with the lowest rates went up from 29.6 cases per 100,000 in the week before Saturday, October the 31st to 47.7 per 100,000 in the seven days before Saturday. In terms of cases, there were 50 positive cases in the week up to Saturday compared to 31 during the previous week. Dr Smith said, What I think is happening is the way the virus is transmitting has reached a tipping point. I think we've gone into the epidemic phase, so we are seeing free transmission in the community and most starkly in areas where there have been low rates. Public Health England have been forecasting this for a number of weeks and I think that's what led us to the national lockdown. She said increased cases in care homes could be one of the reasons for the Broadland rise and that it was crucial to stop the spread to protect older people who are more likely to need hospital treatment if they are infected with COVID-19. She said what we are seeing is a drop in cases among 18 to 22 year olds but we are starting to see the numbers rise in other age groups, people in their 30s, then their 40s and their 50s. The numbers are starting to increase and it's the people in their 60s and above who are the ones who are most likely to need hospital treatment. 39 new coronavirus cases have also pushed the rate of the virus in Great Yarmouth to a new record high. But Dr Smith said figures she had seen suggested that the rate was going down there. Rates have also dropped in Norwich and Breckland, which she said had helped stabilise the overall Norfolk rate. In Breckland, the rate had dropped as it had in Norwich. The new national lockdown was introduced on Thursday last week, so the latest figures do not yet demonstrate what impact that will have on the spread of the virus. An NNUH spokesman said, We are seeing an increase in the number of patients with COVID-19 who require hospital treatment. And it is really important that everyone in Norfolk and Waverley continues thorough hand-washing, social distancing and wearing face coverings when needed. Care Home confirms up to 40 positive coronavirus cases. Gresham Care Home in Galston has confirmed up to 40 residents and staff have tested positive for coronavirus. They confirmed the outbreak on Thursday and said they were working with outbreak teams to manage the situation. A spokesperson for the care home on John Road said between 15 and 25 residents and 10 and 15 members of staff had tested positive for COVID-19. They said a number of our staff and residents have tested positive for COVID-19 and we are actively managing the situation. We can report that between 15 and 25 residents and 10 and 15 staff have currently tested positive. We are working closely with Norfolk's local outbreak management team and colleagues from Public Health England, Norfolk and Waveney Clinical Commissioning Group 
and Norfolk County Council's adult social care following the outbreak at our home. We have been contacting relatives to provide information and assurance and are following the advice of the specialist teams in caring for our residents. We appreciate this is a worrying time for our residents and their families. Their safety and also that of our staff is our top priority at this time. Dr Louise Smith, Norfolk's Director of Public Health, said on Thursday, It seemed COVID-19 has now gone into the epidemic phase in Norfolk, with transmission in areas which previously had low rates. Great Yarmouth has the highest rate in Norfolk, with 165 positive cases per 100,000 people. A spokesperson for Public Health Norfolk said, We are working with Gresham Care Home to provide testing and support following an outbreak of coronavirus. Infection control nurses are supporting the care home and we are continuing to provide advice to help minimise the risk of spreading the virus further. We know this might be a worrying time for those who have loved ones at the home. We will continue working with our partners to support the home to minimise the impact on residents and their families. Hopes that mass testing in Norfolk meat factories could prevent Covid outbreaks. Mass testing could be used for workers in Norfolk's meat manufacturing factories to head off future coronavirus outbreaks. The government this week announced almost 70 areas which will be given rapid test kits for mass testing which has already been happening in Liverpool. Norfolk missed out on that initial rollout of kit, but the County Council has told the government it would like to be considered for the next distribution. Dr Louise Smith, the County's Director of Public Health, said it could potentially help to prevent outbreaks from happening in food processing factories. Recent months have seen COVID-19 outbreaks at such factories as Bernard Matthews, Bannon Poultry and most recently at Cranswick Country Foods in Watton. While efforts including getting staff tested and isolated where necessary have brought these outbreaks under control, Dr Smith said the council is exploring whether it can get government testing kits for regular mass testing of the workforces at such factories. Dr Smith said the type of tests being used in Liverpool, lateral testing, which give a result within about 15 minutes, were probably not sensitive enough to be useful in controlling an actual outbreak. She said lab-based testing, rather than the rapid tests, was more appropriate in those circumstances. But, she said, the quick tests could prove useful in regular tests of the workforce in factories at other times to reduce the chances of an outbreak. She said, we are looking at whether we could use it within the industry to pick up cases early. We are in conversation about that and we need to think about how it could work, but we're talking to the factories about a number of options. She said no decision had been made, but she would want to focus on such high-risk groups. Virologists say a number of reasons contribute to outbreaks in food factories. 
factors include that the virus remains on surfaces longer in the cold and people may have to shout more in noisy conditions, potentially spreading more droplets containing the virus. Social distancing can also be difficult and some of the workers may live or travel to and from work together, sometimes over long distances. And here's something off the subject of COVID. Winding back the clock at Wellesley Recreation Ground. Perhaps you remember cheering on the bloaters when you watched your first football match. You may even have a ticket stub from that infamous victory over Crystal Palace in 1953 that was passed down to you by a loved one. A family member might recall attending celebrity cricket matches many moons ago. Maybe you think back to tearing around the track while you represented your school at an athletics meeting. Many Yarmouth locals will have fond memories of the Wellesley Recreation Ground, but what is the story behind the much-loved venue? In September 1885, the Town Council proposed developing seven and a half acres of North Deans into a recreation ground. A circular cinder bicycle track, one-third of a mile long, was laid there in April 1888, but the ground was officially opened a few months later on August the 6th by the town mayor. An estimated 3,000 people attended that day and paid a shilling for the privilege. It is thought that the first football match played at the Wellesley took place on April the 11th, 1890, when the county captain's team visited on their annual tour and played against a Yarmouth side. One year later, the Town Council's Recreation Committee recommended building a grandstand with a refreshment pavilion and dressing room. They estimated it would cost £1,000, which in today's money would be roughly £128,000. The new stand opened on Whit Monday, June the 11th, 1892, and more than 4,000 visitors attended to watch a mix of cycling and athletics events. Even though Great Yarmouth Town Football Club formed in 1897, it was not until the 1901-2 season that they were allowed to use the old recreation ground as the Wellesley was known back in those days. Since then, the ground has hosted several historic and fascinating events. During World War II, American airmen played baseball games there. In 1953, the ground welcomed its biggest crowd, 8,944 people, who saw the bloaters beat Crystal Palace 1-0 in the FA Cup first round. In the 1970s, Father Christmas landed by helicopter in the ground several times and the television programme It's a Knockout came to the Wellesley. A fire broke out in the grandstand on September the 16th, 1987, which took several weeks to repair. Two years later, a £2,100,000 all-weather athletics track was built and Olympic sprinter John Regis officially opened it on August the 5th, 1990. More recently, in May 2002, 
The stand, tennis pavilion and ticket office received a Grade 2 listing. Well, that's all we have for you for this edition of Grapevine. Grapevine Volume 40, Number 46 is copyright 2020 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The content in the main is adapted from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Your newsreader next week will be Andrew, and we hope that you will join us once again for our weekly look at your local news. In the meantime, from Desney, Andy and myself, it's bye for now. Have a great week and keep well and safe. <laughs>